0: Um, it's amazing to me what God does that you don't know. That passage that he just read, that I had no idea that he was going to read, is the closest quote we have in the Gospels of Jesus to the title of the sermon today. It's the closest thing. And so, it's very interesting to see how these things work. And how God does these things. I don't know if in the past week or so you've heard this news, but um, the richest man in the world, well, depends on which week, whether it's him or Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos is getting a divorce. Now, 20 years, right? And some of the estimates I've seen in this past week or so are that he is worth $137 billion. That's with a B. And what were all of those billions built off of? Amazon. Consumerism. Get stuff. Make yourself happy. If you just buy this thing, if you read this book, or get that 80 bazillion inch television to go on your wall, or whatever it is that's on your wish list, that's going to make you happy, right? I mean... What is Amazon's logo? It's a smile, right? Get stuff, get happy. And our culture is built on getting happy. And it seems like we really do believe if we just accumulate the right stuff, we're going to be happy. My house, two of the channels that we watch most often are HGTV and DIY. It's a double-edged sword because my list keeps getting longer. But, but, What is it all about? Get the bigger house, buy low, sell high. What can Chip and Joanna do for you and your house while simultaneously building their consumer empire of books and stores and magazines and home decor that you can find in Target, right? And then there's the thing, you know, they say millennials, and I don't mean kids. I mean 22 to 37, right? are more into causes and doing the right thing. So they want the tiny house show, right? With the finishes that are better than anything that's in my house. But is it really all that different? Because, you know, they want the experience, not the thing. They're willing to go with the smaller thing while they are recording it all on their $1,000 iPhone. And they are wearing the latest designer whatever, And driving the brand new Audi. And it's really not that different. And all of it has one thing in common. And that one thing in common is me. I live at the center of my world. And even all the good work that I might do, the causes I support, ultimately are about me feeling fulfilled. And honestly, more often than not, we can do all the right things and say all the right things and be involved in the right things, and at the end of the day, where does it leave us? Asking the question, is this really it? And so today, as we continue to walk with Paul through the book of Acts, we're going to come face to face with a radically different view of the world. And that is a view... That says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So today we're in Acts chapter 20, and it's verse 17 to 38, not 18 to 38. I accidentally put the wrong verse number when I sent in my outline. And as you recall, Paul has spent about three years in Ephesus. It's chapter 19. At the end of this, we see this big riot started by the silversmiths. Because Paul's ministry is so effective that in this great city where the idol business is a big economic driver, it's being impacted by Paul's ministry. Side note, nothing to do with our sermon today. Wouldn't it be cool for Christians in 21st century America to be so effective in the way that we live our lives that it would affect whole industries of idol making? And you can take your pick on whatever the 21st century equivalent of silversmiths might be. Paul's been traveling through Macedonia, this is northern, northeastern Greece, and down into Greece, and then back around to Troas in modern Turkey. Then he gets on a boat, and he heads to Miletus. It's about 265 miles to the south, or as Google Maps helpfully told me, about 5 hours and 40 minutes by car today. It's not a small trip. And that's where we find him today. So, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they had arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of everyone, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he brought with his he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own numbers, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the witness of Paul and his example to us. And I pray that this morning we would understand just a little bit more what it means to to be more blessed to give than to receive. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm fighting a cough here. I don't know about you, but I read this passage and, and I, in this kind of sense of the the movie ending, you know, the emotional movie ending where the old hero is dying and passing on his mission to the younger hero. And you can almost kind of hear that mournful music swell and the choked emotions, and there's this raspy, fading voice on the one hand, full of heartache, or there, and on the other hand, this young, strong voice, sort of full of heartache on the other. I mean, Paul's not dying, but there's an ending here, right? There is a change coming. Page is being turned in the story. He's not coming back, or he doesn't think he is. He's being called on to the next thing, the next chapter, And there's a ton going on in this passage, and I feel like I probably could spend a month here. We could talk about ending well, we could talk about trusting God, about the marks of leadership, and it's all in there. But today, what I really want us to do is look at this through that lens of that line at the end of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than receive. I want us to see what that looks like, what it means for us to live our lives, to order our days that way. This is sort of a meandering speech from Paul. It goes back and forth and circles around and repeats itself, but it's remarkably consistent. I was telling Phil about having a struggle trying to figure out how to outline this, and it was sort of at the 11th hour for me that it sort of dawned on me, Paul does the same thing over and over again here. And you're going to see points two, three, and four. The subpoints are identical in all of them because of what Paul does here. This speech is unique in Acts. It's one of three major speeches we hear from Paul. It's the only one that's specifically to Christians. The first one, chapter 13, is at Antioch. And in chapter 17, it's in Athens. And so that's to the Jews and the Greeks, respectively. And Luke does this interesting thing. With these three speeches, he encapsulates the heart of Paul's ministry to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the Christians. He shows who Paul was by doing this. And this speech is very much like Paul's letters. It sounds like the letters that we're used to hearing from Paul. And so, what I wanted to do today is not start at the beginning, but start at the end of the, addre- of the address. And verse 33, I have not coveted. And this is where we get into this idea of what do we really value? Our culture is a culture that values stuff, that values self. Self fulfillment. Right now on Amazon.com, one of the biggest sellers of all books, it's number three yesterday when I checked, it had been number one, is a Christian book by Rachel Hollis. She is an entrepreneur, a self help encourager for women, and Girl Wash Your Face is a book about quote, a bunch of hurtful lies and one important truth. The truth, you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. That's the takeaway, end quote. That's from the introduction. The problem as I see it is not that this book is completely out to lunch because there is some truth to the book, but did you notice what she does in those few sentences? She assumes that happiness is the ultimate goal and self is the center. She doesn't even mention God till near the end of her introduction. And when she does, she makes it really about us, about her audience, really. And she says, God is in control and he loves us. It's sort of standard Christian language in these kinds of books to say, see, I'm okay... You can trust me, I believe the right things about God. But then, she dives into this attitude that says, essentially, God's grace is about us doing better in our day-to-day lives and more so that we can crush it tomorrow. That's her approach. And Paul has a very different approach in our passage today. It is more blessed to give than to receive. As I said This is a quote of Jesus. I don't know about your Bible. My Bible has it in red letter. It's nowhere recorded in the four Gospels. It's different, right? And it's one of those things that helps us to remember, like John says at the end of his Gospel look, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books, right? But it begs the question what do we really value? We know it by what we do, by what we spend our money on. Paul says, look, riches, clothing, like this, this is how in the ancient world you would have determined that you're wealthy. They don't matter to me. You know this because of how I lived when I lived with you. It's not about the stuff that I accumulate to show that I'm important or to make me happy. What did Paul do? He worked with his hands to keep himself and his companions taken care of, and to help the weak, he says. That's the way that he lived his life. That's how he worked. And why does Paul have this attitude? Because he values Jesus more than his happiness. He quotes Jesus not because Jesus makes him happy, because Jesus is a tool for a better life, but because he values Jesus. In verse 19, he says, I've served the Lord. In verse 21, he says he has a consistent message. In verse 22, he's compelled by the Spirit. In verse 24, my life is worth nothing without completing the task. Over and over again in this speech, Paul shows Jesus comes first. He is, to borrow a phrase, all in. Paul values Jesus. He values God not stuff. God comes first. That's the lens through which Paul is looking at the world. And the thrust of this speech is that we can live that way too if we follow Paul. When Rachel Hollis writes her intro, a couple of pages long, it's a beautiful thing about Search Inside on Amazon, I count... 118 variations of I, me, my, and mine. Paul's speech here has 31. Now, his is shorter, but it sure seems on the surface like Paul's doing the same sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of I's in there. Is he doing the humble brag thing? Look, I'm messed up, but I'm overcoming, and you can too? I mean, that's what Rachel Hollis's intro is like. I'm totally messed up, I keep messing up, but I'm getting better, and you can too. That's her message in a nutshell. You don't have to spend the 28 bucks on the book. I probably shouldn't be picking on her, because I haven't read through the whole book. And I have no doubt that she encourages a lot of women and that she has real and true and good things to say, to help people overcome their insecurities. But the difference between her and Paul is that as I read that introduction, God comes off looking like, Jesus comes off looking like a spiritual tool to make her life better. For Paul, he's the spiritual tool to accomplish God's end. Paul isn't bragging, and he's not even humble bragging in our passage today to the Ephesian elders. He is telling them, look, you know who I am and what I've done, and I have been driven by Christ. Follow me. You can follow me, because my track record shows you the truth of who I am and what I'm about, about my faithfulness my faithfulness to God and the work he's called me to. Look at my example. As he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. That's not bragging. That's the opposite of bragging. He says, Jesus is the measuring stick for my life and for your life, and insofar as I follow Jesus, follow me. But Paul also shows us that we have to count the cost. If you follow someone like Paul, if you follow someone like Jesus, there's going to be a cost. Verses 19 and 23 make that clear. The occasion of the speech makes it clear. Paul is saying goodbye. He says, I'm not going to see you again. Now, we think, historians will tell you, that he actually probably did get back to Ephesus later in the the future, that he was released from prison, but he didn't think that was going to happen. And verses 36 to 38, that last part of the passage, make it clear that when one chapter ends in life and ministry and another begins, look, it is appropriate to be sorrowful. There is a cost to putting Jesus at the center and not self. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to make your life here and now the best it can be and it won't guarantee success or wealth or even happiness. <clears throat> Paul knew that by putting Jesus first, by giving rather than receiving, there was a cost. He knows it's coming, and he does it anyway. And that all sets the, bu- the stage for the, what I would say is the meat of the speech. We have to get that part re- first because that sets the trajectory. And that is, first, to live a legacy. See, a lot of times we talk about leaving a legacy. We talk about this at funerals and things. But Paul shows, no, I'm living one. And we see it in four ways. And we're going to see this repeatedly. First, remember your place. Verse 19. Paul says he is serving the Lord in all humility, or he had served the Lord in all humility. He knows who he is. He's the servant. The word servant is bondservant, slave. Paul is not his own. His obligation is to God. He doesn't belong to himself. That means I have to act as Jesus acts, to live as Jesus lives. He has to be humble, and we see that. Paul says, I came to you in humility. We are to be servants of God, first and last. That's how Paul starts his speech. That's how he ends the speech, humility. You don't live a legacy by conquering the world, but by living a life of humility and service to God. And that is not our style as 21st century Americans. I have lost track of the amount of pastors of megachurches with palatial homes that I have read about, like massive homes that you can get lost in. Just last week, there was an announcement of another pastor in our area stepping down, not for immorality, as we would euphemistically call it, but honestly because of arrogance, a lack of humility, He was and is arguably a jerk to the people around him. And Paul's life shows that humility has to be a way of life for the Christian, especially the one who ministers. And I don't mean false humility, the kind that sort of demeans what we do. Paul doesn't do that here. He says, look at me. Look at what I've done. He calls attention to it, how he's lived, because it hasn't been about him. It's been about Jesus, and in service to Jesus. Second, Paul is faithful in the face of trials. When he came to Ephesus, he was in tears, it says, because of the trials, the severe testing because of the plots of the Jews. And all of these guys know the circumstances when he leaves, because he's basically pushed out by the Greeks. At every point... In this journey with Paul that we've seen, he's been beset by trials. At every turn, there's opposition. Someone tries to stop him. And at times, he's been worn down, and he's needed the encouragement and the relationships of others. But at every place, Paul is faithful, period. And this pattern is not just Paul's. We see it throughout Scripture. Joseph is faithful in exile and slavery in Egypt, David is faithful when Saul pursues him and when his son overthrows him. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are faithful when their lives are on the line and Jeremiah is faithful even though his life is a mess and he is called the weeping prophet. And the list could and does go on and on. Trials are a part of the lives of saints. They've been part of Paul's life and he's been faithful. Third. Paul fulfills his assignment no matter what. Verse 20, Paul says he didn't hesitate. Or many translations say, I did not shrink from declaring. And verse 27 says the same thing. I did not shrink back. I like that because it reminds us that we can. We can shrink back. And there's times that we don't want to do what's right or what we need to do. We have that possibility. And Paul understands that and says, I could have, but I didn't. I didn't shrink back. In verse 26, Paul says that he's innocent of everyone's blood. A few weeks ago when we were in chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth and he says, your blood be upon your own heads. And like then, he's referencing Ezekiel 33, the responsibility of the guard at the tower to warn others, right? If he doesn't do his job, their blood is on his head. If he does his job and they don't listen, that's on them, not on him. Paul does what's required of him. He does his job no matter what. Verse 20 says he does it publicly and privately. Verse 21 says he declares it to the Jews and the Gentiles. Look, Paul doesn't have a small assignment. It's large, Declare Jesus to everyone. To his people and to the broader culture. If he had a stage or if he had none. Preach sermons, teach in small groups, even one-on-one. No matter the setting, no matter the people. Whether they were like him or opposed to him. Preach Jesus. <coughs> For us, what does following Paul's example in being faithful to our job, look like. I think at the very least it means being faithful publicly in a culture that doesn't want to hear the message of Jesus and privately with those closest to us, being willing to say the uncomfortable things because we actually care about the truth and those who need to hear it, because we're willing to be uncomfortable because God matters and says that those people matter too. It means that we don't got to simply go to people who are like us politically or racially or religiously. Paul went to people who were like him and people who were absolutely not like him. He did it without prejudice without condescension. And I dare say for us that means reexamining our motivations and the people we write off. Are we willing to be friends with to love and share the love of God with our enemy, whoever that might be, and and ask ourselves, who is the other in our life, in my life? Skin's a different color. They vote a different way. They're gay or Muslim or an atheist. And Paul was faithful in reaching out no matter who they were, in telling the truth. He's not guilty of their blood because he is faithful. Because he knew it wasn't about his comfort. It was about a singular message. The gospel of grace. And that's Paul's job. His one job, his one message, declare the gospel. Repentance and faith. Verse 21. Repentance and faith to God through Jesus. Repentance means a change of direction. It is central to Jesus' preaching, and we see it especially in Mark's Gospel. But it's not just stop doing this and start doing this other thing. It's not replace one thing with something else. It's a change of of how you look at the world, of your orientation in life. The world around us says that if something doesn't work, exchange it for something else. Try that. Something more important or more fulfilling. But it's never enough. It's never enough. Repentance means we exchange ourselves and our ability to give direction to our life for God's. Like Paul, we exchange what we were for Jesus. It means, as Paul says elsewhere, that we have to die to ourselves. And faith in Jesus is the way we get there. It's not a generic faith. It's not an I believe in God, however I define him, her, or it kind of faith. It's specific. Paul says that you repent, that you turn toward God through Jesus. Jesus is the means by which we turn toward God, and not just the means. He is not a spiritual tool. He is God in flesh. God made one of us who lived and taught and suffered among us. He doesn't provide a 12-step plan or a list of lies that we must overcome. He provides a person. And Paul's message is not that we need to be empowered, or we need to stop believing lives, or get our priorities straight, or believe in ourselves, or a hundred other self-help mechanisms that will make our lives better. It's that we have to die to ourselves. It is for me to live as Christ. That's our message to the world, in a nutshell. None of the effort we pour into our lives will ultimately earn out just doesn't work that way thankfully it doesn't have to because the gospel the good news of jesus christ is the gospel of god's grace and paul's going to show us that more fully in a moment and paul is shown in four different ways that he has lived a life of (coughs) for god of giving rather than receiving and i don't know about you but i've heard accounts i've seen people who started well They seem to have a living legacy, but something happens and they stop. It gets hard. They get bored or they drift or whatever. But when we look at Paul, in verse 22, the sort of second stanza to his sermon, we're going to see that same pattern repeated. He has done it, but he's also facing the future faithfully. And we see that starting in verse 22. And Paul, once again, remembers his place. He's headed into the next phase of life, a scary one. And Paul remembers who he is. He says he is compelled by the Spirit. He is bound by the Spirit. It mirrors verse 19, where he talks about serving as a bondservant. Paul is not his own. He belongs to God. He had lived for someone else, and he's going to live for someone else he's going to live for someone else for Jesus knowing that it's never going to stop he's bound and often when we look to the future or for the future we want to imagine better things grander things but Paul remembers who he is he says I serve God even in an uncertain future And second, I'm going to be faithful in the face of trials. See, we know Paul had faced trials. He just told us that. But verse 22 says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I don't know what's going to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like uncertainty. I don't like it. I don't like not knowing what's next. I tend to be risk-averse. Honestly, I wish that wasn't true about myself. But it does tend to be there. I wish I had more willingness to take on the unknown. Paul says, I don't know what God has in store, but I'm going to be faithful. We're going to see just how much in a moment, but first Paul says that he doesn't know exactly what's coming, what the circumstances will be. He does know the kind of future that he's going to have verse 23, he says that he's going to have trials in prison, that he's going to be in chains, there will be suffering, and Paul goes into a future faithfully knowing there is pain ahead. He's not asking for it, but the Holy Spirit has been preparing him for it. In every city along the way, we read that the Spirit testifies to him, and I get the feeling that perhaps he leaves Ephesus after, and, and God has been preparing the whole way all the way up and around the Aegean Sea and back. And when we're faithful, we're going to suffer. And God will prepare us for that. And Paul is ready. And he is saying that he is still going to fulfill his assignment no matter what. Just like verse 20, but more so. He says, my life isn't worth anything if I don't do what God has given me to do. In verse 24. Finish the race. Complete the task. Not going to be easy. Suffering is coming. But his goal is not to avoid the pain, but to complete the job God has given him. And what's that job? Once again, a singular message. The gospel of grace. Verse 24. What does he say? He says that to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. God has made a way for us for true fulfillment, for true peace, not in spite of the trials and the suffering, but in and through them. Why? Why? because God's good news is greater than Caesar's good news. You see, Paul's living in the Roman world in a Roman city and the good news in the Roman world was Caesar is Lord. Full stop. And that meant that that was proclaimed in every city in the Roman Empire when a new Caesar came into power or when a new city was was conquered. And Roman peace was at the was peace. There's no question about it, but it was peace at the end of a Roman gladius and spear backed by the Roman legions. And God's good news is peace with God Himself through the outstretched arms of His Son. Not through military might or compulsion, but by His free offering of grace to all. And to us, that sounds simple. Why would you turn that away? Why would you reject that message? But it comes with a cost, it costs God. But it also costs us because we have to die to ourselves. We must admit we don't get to be in control, that we cannot merit God or heaven or even a good life now. And we have to say that God gets to define how it works. And grace means we're in his debt. And this life that follows Paul's example, that knows it's more blessed to give than to receive, doesn't stop with Paul's past, or with Paul's future, it also means that he's preparing his own replacement. Paul invited the elders of Ephesus to come to him. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, and he pauses and waits for them to make the 30-mile journey from Ephesus to Miletus. It's not a quick jaunt down the road. It takes me 40 minutes to go the 30 miles from my house to Shabonoth. It's not that simple for these guys. So why does Paul do this if he needs to get to Jerusalem so badly? (coughs) Because he knows that change is coming. He knows that it's not enough for him to live a legacy. It's not enough for him to live faithfully. He knows he has to make sure that God's flock is well cared for, that future generations will follow in his pattern. And the church needs godly leaders, and it needs those who will set an example. So Paul tells them, remember your place. They're called elders in verse 17, overseers and shepherds in verse 28. It's really interesting. In the New Testament, we get three words for the leaders of the church, and all three of them are in this speech. Presbyteros, episkopos, poimen. Three aspects of one office. The first comes straight from the Jewish elder, from the presbyterus. We get the word Presbyterian from there. Comes straight from the Jewish synagogue sh- structure. The second means overseer or guardian, episcopas, episcopal church, bishop is where we get that word. We get that word from there. Poimain means shepherd. And to me, this is the poignant part of this because it's the one that he focuses most on, being a shepherd is not a glamorous job. It's dirty and smelly and no doubt frustrating and at times dangerous. But throughout Scripture, God always connects the imagery of shepherd with those that are to lead his people. You see, these elders, they oversee, they function not from a place of glory, but from a place of service and care. After all, Paul says, this is not your church, it's God's church. He purchased the flock with his blood, Paul says. And just like Paul was a slave of God, and just like he is bound by the Spirit to continue on, these elders serve the church in the same capacity. How do they do that? First, be faithful in the face of trials. What does Paul say? He says, look, I've faced trials, I'm going to face trials, and so will you. Notice verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves, he says, and for the whole flock. Why? Verse 29. Wolves are coming. They're going to feast on the flock. They're coming from inside the church and from outside the church, even from your own number, he says. And sometimes we're tempted to think if the really faithful one would just go away or shut up for a while, we could make it through without suffering. We could weather the storm, we could kind of hunker down and kind of ride under the radar and not have a problem, but Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. The wolves are coming. They want to devour and carry off God's people, and if they don't come from the outside, they're coming from the inside. Shepherds are needed. So I would say, pray for your leaders so that they can hold fast in the face of the trials, because the trials are coming. They're real. And at this point, I would be remiss if I did not add that While the leadership of the church has a special obligation in this passage, it would be a mistake to think that these instructions are merely for the leaders. (coughs) We know this for a few reasons. One, we know that the book of Acts was not written simply to the leaders of the church, but to the church as a whole. And God wants this message to be heard by all of us. Second, Paul's instruction here, echoes his instructions throughout his letters. In Romans 5, 3-4, he says, We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 6, Paul instructs all believers put on the armor of God. Why? The devil's schemes are coming. He regularly tells believers to imitate him. And first in First and 2 Thessalonians, he says, stand firm, trials are coming. And that's for all Christians. And further, where do Christian leaders come from? They come from here. Which means this is for all of us. Paul also says, fulfill your assignment, no matter what, to the leaders. Your task as an elder is to make sure you guard against What's coming? It means guarding inside and out, including yourself. That's the shepherd's role, the task of a leader. Be on guard, he says. And then in verse 31, he says, Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. What is he doing there? He's reminding them again to pattern their lives after his. His example. My job, Paul says, was to warn others. So is yours. Paul is innocent of the blood of all, just like the watchman in Ezekiel, because he was diligent at his job, and so must the elders be. That's not always easy. And many times it's thankless. And many times people will resent it. And a warning still has to be given, even if it's when people don't want to hear. Guard yourselves. Guard the flock. A sheep wants to go where a sheep wants to go. And a shepherd's job is to stop them, even if they don't want to. And for our culture, it's even worse than for Paul's. Because in the ancient world, tradition and family and obligation kind of functioned as guardrails to keep people sort of in bounds, right? And not going too far astray. In our world, we, we basically have said, fulfill your dreams do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, whatever gives you joy, stuff and things and self and, frankly, to hell with the old way of thinking. That's the way our culture looks at it. The assignment of the Christian, especially the leader, is to make sure that these lies are not believed. The assignment is to guard the flock, even when the flock doesn't want to hear. And that means, just like Paul, privately and publicly, to those we like and to those we don't, to those who are like us and to those who are not like us, we have a singular message. What does he say in verse 32? Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Grace is Everywhere in the speech. It's the heart of Paul's message because it's the heart of God's message. And here's the beautiful thing about this. You see, all the self-help books, even the Christian ones, can't deliver if all they do is pump us up to get over our fears and our failings, to take life by the horns, so to speak, and to make it go where we want. In the end, they will all fail because we will fail. Because we can never really live up to that idea idea or ideal. But the message of God's grace is we don't have to anyway. Because God has done it. And we are his. And true peace and true fulfillment, a true inheritance, Paul says, that's God's grace. And that's not a cop-out. It's not a blank check for us to do what we want, when we want, how we want, because God's got it covered. Look what Paul says an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What does that mean? We're set apart, holy, for and to God. That is an act of worship. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It says, I have repented. I have oriented my life away from myself, whatever I want today, and toward God. And there's going to be hard work ahead Discipline and hardship and death to self. But it's worth it. There will be new chapters and there will be hard partings as we see in verses 36 to 38. And we are going to need a lot of prayer. And we'll have not a few tears. Because as we follow Paul, as we count the cost, as we see Jesus and we become like him, and then as we look back, And as I close, I want to read verses 33 to 35 again because I think that's the heart. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did. I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen.